0: Hello, and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and this episode, my guest is Christopher Fielden. Chris is an award-winning and Amazon best-selling author of short stories. He has had his work published in over 30 anthologies, as well as his own collection called Alternative Afterlives. He has also released a guidebook called How to Write a Short Story, Get Published and Make Money. And he is the organiser of the annual comedy short story competition, To Hull and Back. This interview was recorded in mid-November, and it's the first interview that I've recorded with my new clip-on mics. Unfortunately, Chris's mic drops out for about 4 seconds, around 23 minutes into the interview. I've tried to boost the signal from my mic, but it definitely gets quieter, so my apologies for that. Anyway, without further ado, here is the intro jingle. Hello, and this week my guest is uh, Chris Fieldin. Hello.
1: Hi, Tom. How are
0: you? I'm very well and uh, very excited to actually have a face to face
1: We interview. are in the same We're room. We are in the
0: same room. Socially distanced, but in <laughs> the same room. And we'll say which room in a moment. But my first question, as always, is what are we drinking?
1: We are drinking some rock and roll related water to
0: cleanse the palate. That's it. I will make a disclaimer that this is our second attempt at this interview as the audio on the first was appalling. <laughs> so, um, we're using new audio equipment for the very first time and uh, fingers crossed it will be the second and final attempt. Let's oh. hope so. It's nice and comfortable, I can say that much. That's good. Clip on mics. Getting mm. going up in the world. And yeah, my second question is usually, is this your writing area, but this week we're actually at my house and we're in my library so use your narrative voice with a fresh pair of eyes describe my library
1: it's a room that i would like to write in it's small it's cozy there's a guitar on the wall the curtains are drawn the light is romantic oh. shall we say <laughs> uh, lots definitely. of candles and there's lots of bookshelves it's uh, yeah it's a really nice room thank you
0: and so where Do you write? Obviously, not in this room. Where do you
1: like to write? I sometimes write out of practicality Mm -hmm. in my dining room, which Mm -hmm. is where I tend to work. And if I get a choice, I uh, have a mobile writing office, which is otherwise known as a camper van. Mm -hmm. And I head off in that to remote locations with a view and write in that because that's to be creative, I think.
0: And is that where you do the majority of your writing?
1: That's where I'm most prolific. Okay. I'd say it's about 50-50 though because sometimes for practical reasons you've just got to write at home. But I mean the reason for going away in the van is to remove distractions rather than be away in it. Yeah. One of my favourite spots is up in the Cambrian Mountains high Mm -hmm. up above the Llinbrian Reservoir. Oh wow. And there's no internet, there's no TV signal, there's no phone signal. So you don't get any notifications and therefore you can focus. That's amazing. And how
0: how long have you been going up there or or going uh, away to write? Probably about, on and off for about
1: five or six years. I think that's about how long I've had the van for. Yeah.
0: And so are are you just writing pen and paper? Is it pure analogue up there or is it just... No, I take the computer because I've got the
1: van kitted out like a proper camper. It's got a leisure battery so i can power a computer okay my writing my handwriting is so dreadful (laughs) that i would never dream (laughs) of trying to do that okay so it's on the laptop (laughs) it's on the laptop yeah nice okay
0: and what's the longest period that you've had up there probably about
1: two weeks because you have well you run out of food so you have (laughs) to come out of the mountain sometimes but yeah two week trip and then you can get a nice chunk of words on On
0: How was it that you discovered this place, or discovered that you were more prolific uh, writing away? Can you remember the first time that you went away and what motivated you? The
1: first time I went up there was with my ex-wife. We used to holiday a lot in the van. And we happened upon it by Mm -hmm. accident when we were on our way over to the west coast of Wales. And uh, we were both very taken with the area. Yeah. And after that, I thought this would make a lovely place to write because there's loads of Forestry Commission car parks okay. just up above the reservoir. And yeah, I went back not long after to have a go on my own, yeah. if you like. And it is a beautiful spot up there because it's all Forestry Commission. There's just logging trucks and sheep. Okay. And there's some tourists up there, but yeah. it's not a tourist hotspot. Mm. So it's very peaceful. Nice. Do you remember the first thing that you wrote up there? Ooh, that's a good question. No. (laughs) I can't. It would have been one of the stories out of Alternative Afterlives, but I'm trying to think when. I don't actually know, Tom.
0: Okay, But Alternative Afterlives is your first solo collection of short stories. That's right, yeah. Were the majority of those stories
1: written there, or was it, again, 50-50? It's about 50-50. Some of those stories, probably the oldest one's about 10 years old, and they're all stories that have either one or been placed in competitions, or been previously published, because I used that as a kind of qualifier for whether it was good or not, good enough to be in a solo collection. And the other thing about that book is they're all themed around death. And I noticed that a lot of my stories, without consciously thinking about it, have death as a theme. Uh, So when I went to put it to a publisher, it helps if you've got something that ties all the stories together. And I think that's what helped me sell it.
0: Yeah. And now that you've recognize that as a common although it was initially an unconscious theme Mm. is that now something that you
1: are consciously exploring in the stories that you write now yes although I've gone the other way with it a bit and the ones I'm writing now tend to be themed more about life (laughs) but I thought that would make a nice contrast for the second book which is just again it wasn't on purpose it's just that's the way it's gone okay that's cool yeah
0: and with your stories Is there much planning to the, like, when you get an idea for, you know, that you think you want to turn into a story, what is it about it where you're going, this isn't just a flight of fancy, this is actually something I want
1: to write? It's usually when I've got a a character that I can see, so I can Mm. visualise them. When I write, I tend to see everything on a movie screen. Mm. So if I can't visualise it like that, then it tends to not happen. But it's the, the strong character, and it's usually they've got a story to tell, and I know where Usually I know where it's going to end, okay. and that means I can drive towards it. But that tends to be as far as planning goes. I did one story that I planned properly mm. just to try it out, and that's called the Ninja Zombie Knitting Circle. And that it's got a crime element to mm. it, and I had to plan it to make the um, reveal at the end as to who the criminal was yeah. work. And the thing I found about that was that it meant I could finish the story, well, the first draft of the story in one sitting, Mm. which is very unusual for me because I'm not that prolific. (laughs) (laughs) And because you write short stories, Mm. you're known for your short stories.
0: On average, how how long is a short story for you? uh, Because the definition of a short story is quite broad and it can be sometimes tens of thousands and sometimes... Yeah, a few hundred if it's flash. Mm. So, where do you think you sit on average with your?
1: My sweet spot is between a thousand and five thousand words, and I'd say the vast majority around about the two and a half, three thousand, mm. and that's because I edit a lot, yeah. so make them tight. Yeah, and so you're
0: coming up with a character, and it's a uh, like you say, you've got an ending in mind, and you're just mm. write into that ending, and keeping it succinct. Is there? Much uh, with the characterization, do, do you develop much of a backstory for them, or is it just seeing this person in the moment?
1: I usually know what the backstory is, but it's very rare in my opinion. It's rare that you need to share mm. the entire backstory of a character with the reader, especially in a short piece of fiction. Yeah. It's a little bit different in novels because they spend more time yeah. with the characters. But I usually know the characters fairly well mm. and what I'm finding with my writing at the moment is because I'm doing sequels the next book I'm working on is called Sinister Sequels and mm. each short story is a sequel to one in an alternative afterlives yeah. so I already know the characters there's some new ones mm. but it's quite nice revisiting them and learning more, more yeah. about them and seeing what yeah. other stories they've got to tell yeah. so it's it's a really fun experience is it a sequel for every story that was in the first book yes okay. that's the plan yeah but the sequels they it's not like the first story finishes and then the second one starts mm. it could involve one character from the previous story okay. in a different situation or it could be years later so it's you know it's fairly loose okay because otherwise i think it'd be really hard to write it's yeah. it's hard enough to write anyway to be <laughs> honest it is quite challenging yeah. but because i want yeah. each story to stand alone on its own whether sure. you've read the previous one or not yeah, but does the fun outweigh the challenge in revisiting these? Ca- oh yeah, these... definitely, yeah. definitely. And I quite like the challenge because it mm. gives you a focus and makes you finish the story. Yeah, and with your stories,
0: um, would you describe them all in as being genre? And
1: if so, what type of genre do you fulfil? <laughs> Broadly, humorous fantasy mm. with bits of horror. So yeah. sometimes I slip into full-on horror. Yeah. But even then, it's more John Carpenter-style horror, yeah, where it's, you know, 70s... You can imagine the story being told around a campfire kind yeah. of thing, like they open the fog with. yeah. Um, but, yeah, for the most part, it's going along the lines of Terry Pratchett and yeah. Douglas Adams and that kind of trying to do something as good as they did. <laughs> yeah. And with the fantasy tropes, are you consciously
0: trying to build worlds with a... A fantasy element to it and how does that world building
1: develop? I've got a mix of two so I've got some fantastical stories that are set in the real world mm. with like witches or demons or whatever and others that are set all in one particular land. If you read the stories you wouldn't necessarily know it's all set on in one world if you yeah. like but I've got a map and I know where all these things are yeah. so that if any of them develop into longer pieces in the future it will all tie together because I know the history of it all. Oh, excellent. So. I delve into a bit of both, really. And so have you named your world? The area in the world is called Gordesia. Okay. The actual planet, if you like, yeah. hasn't been named yet, no. So is Gordesia the kingdom? Sort that's of the main kingdom, and the countries within it are yeah. where the conflict happens, right. yeah.
0: Okay, that's cool. And you said you have done maps
1: for certain yeah. stories.
0: Are Some quite close. Do they all fit together, you know?
1: Yes they could in theory they could in future they they're all in within codessi the ones mm. that I've done so far and it actually evolved out of a and d campaign okay. so I used to play D&D when I was younger and so I had loads of different worlds from that yeah. but there was one that I was particularly taken with where we did this really epic campaign it was like this is a cool world I've got to yeah. set something here so I I've tweaked it for using in fiction but that's where it came from okay was it a a conscious
0: thing when you started writing fiction that you wanted to set it in this world or was it
1: after a couple of stories you went actually these would all fit i think i took a couple of the names originally Mm. from this world and then it was like i've taken the name so i might as well set them there since then i just set them all there if they're not set on earth okay
0: that's cool and with uh, D&D, because I've you know, a few authors that I've interviewed have done D&D, do you find that has benefited your writing,
1: like the mechanics of D&D into the structure of the way you write stories? I think it's helped with the imagination and the characters, but D&D is a game mm. and it is not a story. Yeah. And there are big bits of D&D that would make a very boring story <laughs> yeah. when you're yeah. all sitting around chatting about mm. what you're going to do next given the situation yeah. you're in. So you can get some good ideas from D&D, I think, but it's a different medium. Yeah. I think with creating characters and the class system that you have
0: in D&D mm. and the political backstories of, say, like elves and dwarves mm. and things like that, was your inspiration you know, the books on D&D and how they present fantasy, or was it more, as you said, Pratchett and Douglas, you know, sort of Douglas <laughs> Adams in and,
1: and fiction was more your inspiration for the type of fantasy you write? That's a good question. I think probably Terry Pratchett, Douglas Adams, Mm. Ursula Le Le Guin and people Mm. like that, Stephen King. I could make a very long list of authors. (laughs) I think that's probably had more influence, certainly on the way I write stories. But when it comes to the monsters and Mm. where they dwell and interactions with mythical uh, races, a lot of that is whether consciously or not is taken from D&D. Yeah or influenced by it anyway. I've got one story where it's, it's about trolls and humans, and the mm-hmm. humans don't treat the trolls well. And the trolls are a mix of Lord of the Rings with some D&D aspects yeah. to it as well. So I think I take influence from all of it, really. Yeah, it's just that, you know, I think as someone who
0: enjoys fantasy but hasn't written fantasy it's just where do these wonderful worlds come from but there are similarities in you know dragons are often seen the same way dwarves are often seen the mm. same way there's certain like tropes that you mm. associate with certain races and i think D is a good one stop mm. for that because the books that you get in dnd you seem to lay out, this is the history, mm. this is what powers they have, mm. or you know, how they approach magic, or the political classes within this society. And I think if someone wanted to write fantasy, it, it seems to me, from you know, sort of what you've said and, and
1: other people have said, that's like a good shorthand, sort of a cheat sheet. as you It would is, it. Yeah. yeah, but I think a lot of it's based on folklore and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. So it's, it comes from history and mm. stories that were told by yeah. people around campfires a long time ago. Yeah. So it's actually quite a good place to do that, I think. The Monster Manual's great if you want to learn about the different monsters, and then you can go on the internet and find out more about them. When you take the stereotypes, I find with short stories, sometimes you have to work Mm. with those tropes because you're asking someone to visualise something in a very short word count. Yes. And for example, I wrote a story about death, Mm. and death's always described as wearing a cloak and being a a skeleton as a scythe and i had a it's a 1500 word story and i tried writing versions of it where death was something different they were a Mm. child or they were an old lady Mm. or they were a a demon and it Mm. just didn't work because it wasn't what people picture death as being and really the story wasn't about that it was about someone dying and facing death and Mm. being worried about what death was going to do with them yeah and it had to focus on that so i actually used All that stereotyped imagery and it worked within the context of that story because it was so short so I think the tropes have their place. Yes. In the
0: past you've written short stories for competitions and for submission Mm. what challenges have you faced writing to competition that is different from
1: writing for yourself? I think when you're writing for yourself and you understand what you want from a story you get a certain bit of freedom because you're not doing it for someone else necessarily. I usually write with the reader in mind, but that could be a wide range of people. Whereas when you're writing for a competition, you're really writing for the person that's judging the competition or the the panel. And therefore you have to take on board what they're looking for. So I I enjoy writing for myself more because you've got more freedom to go where you want with it. That said, from doing competitions, I learned an awful lot about how to write a good story yeah. and it does make you understand the art a bit better and I think you know there's lots of rules with writing yeah. which I prefer to look on as guidelines and rather than obeying them you have to understand them yeah. so that you can understand what you want to mm. do with them to develop your own voice I think if you're starting out entering competitions is really good yeah. and if you can get a critique from the judge that's yeah. useful that really helps you. When I started out, I entered Writers' Forum along mm. because they give very reasonably priced, terse critiques that tells you why they mm. either have or haven't accepted it.
2: Yeah.
1: And I found that very beneficial, you know, as a fiver, and yeah. they tell you what's wrong with it, and then you can go and fix it. Or you can say, no, they've totally <laughs> missed the point there. Yeah. I, this obviously isn't the right place for me to submit. Mm. So I think entering competitions is, was a great learning curve for yeah. me. And I often recommend it to other people. Yeah.
0: And I guess it's the equivalent of a novelist having an editor, but it's on a case-by-case basis mm. that you're having that. And so how many years were you writing for competitions before you felt you, you were ready
1: to publish your own collection? Oh, long time. It was about eight years, wow. I'd say. Eight, nine years. And it took that long really to master it is probably the yeah. wrong word to become competent enough to do it.
0: And what was the moment where you thought, okay, you know, sort of I've had enough feedback and you know, sort of, what was it about you know, your writing at that point where you're like, okay,
1: I now want to get a collection together? I think it's because I had for one, I had so many stories, and for two, I got placed in a competition run by Ink Tears, and they ask you to submit a collection of stories for their consideration mm-hmm. when you come in the top six okay and I I basically put a collection together yeah and didn't think about it too much yeah and they came back to me and said this is too much of an eclectic mix there's nothing to tie it together we love some of them and we don't like the others and therefore yeah. we can't take it and they ended up taking about four stories for a showcase book okay. instead and that really made me think about what a short story collection needed and that Mm. was a theme that tied Mm. everything together so that there was a reason for all these stories to be presented together in a book beyond just all being written by the same person. Yeah, They needed to have something that tied them all together and uh, I suppose that's really what got me thinking about it so it Mm. came off the back of that experience through that competition and when I thought about it once I put the book together and thought that through I sent it to a publisher and they took it on.
0: Well, that's good. So that was quite fast then. It was, yeah. Yeah. So how long was it from dealing with that competition, that showcase, to gathering it and? It was
1: probably about a two-year period. Okay, but it wasn't like I was spending that entire two years just doing that. Yeah, I got the knockback from Ink Tears, which was that while it wasn't the end result I wanted, it was still a positive experience. Yeah, and I learned a lot from it, and they still published some of my work. But then I went to uh, a book launch in London through someone who'd written for my website and they were like, you've really helped me out. Would you like to come to my book launch because I've got a publisher now? And so I went to it and met the publisher there and that's actually how I got the in for the short story collection Mm because I'd met them and then went on to do some editing work with them. Uh, So there was a little bit of who you know going on. (laughs) But you know they could have still said no to the collection. They just, it gave me someone to approach and say, look, would you be interested in this?
0: What I want to do now is is go into the day-to-day writing process of mm. it. So you said that when you write uh, 50% at home, 50% in the van, mm. um, what is uh, a writing session for you? Do you start first thing in the morning? Do you get everything done out of the the day and then write at night? And how long do you write for? Do you take lots of breaks
1: or do you just like power through until there's nothing left? That I have no easy answer to that question <laughs> okay. because I don't work to a set routine. Yeah. So because of the nature of all the different work I do, mm. I tend to clear the plate as best I can yeah. of work so that my head space is clear. Ooh. And then that could be the morning, it could be the evening, yeah. could be the middle of the day. It's usually when I've got a bit of peace and quiet, to be honest. Yeah. And I'm not that prolific. I'm quite happy if I write 500 words I'm pleased with. Yeah. I'd much rather do a good 500 words than 4,000 that I can't use. Yeah. So I've always approached it in kind of short bite-sized chunks and I write for as long as I feel creative and then I yeah. stop again. Okay.
0: And do you always work on one story at a time until you feel that you've got it the best you can or do you have a couple on the go?
1: I'd like to do one at a time but now <laughs> I've always got about three or four on the go and then you've got choices if you get stuck with one mm. and I find that sometimes if you go off and do a different story Yeah. It suddenly the other one, a thought will come to you in the shower or something yeah. bizarre like that and then you're just like, oh, that's what I need to do with that. Yeah. How obvious. Yeah. But if you don't have that little break from it, then you, yeah. you might get stuck. So i have approach it like that. The other thing I find really helpful is that I've got writing, which is mm. one person and quite lonely, and I also create music in bands where it's a group yeah. of people working together. And I find if you do a bit of music... that really inspires the writing because when you've done that, you're ready Mm. to go and work on your own again. So I've got the best of both worlds there. When you work with other people, you don't always get your own way, which is a good thing. But there's that kind of camaraderie Mm. when you're writing the songs. Whereas with writing, you've got to get something finished and then take it to your writing group for a critique or work with an editor or whatever. It's it's just a different experience. And I like the difference between the two. I find they fuel each other. Yeah,
0: I guess when you're in a you know music group like you are with Airbus, the pressure's not on you to have the nugget of inspiration. That's right. But someone can start something and it can then inspire you. And so you feed off each other. And uh, how long have you been in that band? We started off,
1: our first rehearsal was in 1987. Wow. <laughs> so it was a long time yeah. ago in the school music block because oh. we all went to school together. So how many years is that, 2035? Something, like, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it will be
0: 35 next year. Yeah, next year, yeah. And I guess with that, you know each other's personalities Mm. very well and the tastes of each other because you've grown up and you've progressed with each other. Do you find that when you're coming up with your section of the music, you
1: can almost predict what their reaction will be? With Airbus, no. No? Because it's very... I don't know. There's so it's very diverse. Airbus. Okay. There's lots of different musical tastes in there. Yeah, and you can never quite tell what's going on with that band, which is why it's still going. I think because yeah. it keeps it fresh in our minds. I play in another band called Little Villains, and that's very much rock and metal. Okay, and so that's a little bit more like you can predict what that needs. That's got a very yeah. definite sound to it. Right. Whereas Airbus is influenced by such a wide range of music from different people <laughs> that there there aren't really limits to it. Okay, so I guess with um, Little
0: Villains the the sound's refined over the years and
1: Airbus sounds like it's more exploratory and it's more progressive. absolutely, yeah. Okay, that's cool. And I think that's what keeps it fresh now which is why we're still able to do it even though we're all almost 50 were still doing it whereas yeah with the rock stuff little villains original the original drummer was filthy animal Taylor out of motorhead oh wow <laughs> and i had to stand in those boots after that and i was like oh my god that was a slightly nerve-wracking that was very different and i can tell you a little bit about that if yeah, you like yeah yeah absolutely because obviously he um he died unfortunately and uh james who's also in airbus with me mm. which is why I got asked to do it, it was like, I've got all this stuff to put out which Phil recorded mm. would you like to get involved with it and I was like well I don't you know he plays with a double kick drum and he's very quick yeah and I play with a single kick drum and I'm not so quick it's a yeah. totally different style yeah. I play more like Phil Rudd who's out of ACDC yeah. and James was like you can do your own thing with it mm-hmm. I prefer you did your own thing with it so let's get together and try it out and it, it worked yeah. I don't play like Phil did yeah but it's gone in its own direction now it's abandoned its own right and it's managed to continue without him so yeah yeah it, it's really good fun to be part of something like that yeah because the so many years have passed it, it mm. definitely feels like your role now but it, it does now yeah when we the, did the first tour where we were just playing his stuff that was nerve-wracking, because yeah. it was like, what are people going to think? Because I don't play like him, and I'm doing yeah. my own thing with it. But it was really well-received. Oh, so good. Yeah, I think
0: thankfully. Yeah, metal fans
1: yeah, are passionate. They are, <laughs> especially when it comes to Motorhead. Yes. They're very passionate about that band, because yeah. you know, it's so iconic. But yeah, that was a hell of an experience. Yeah. Mm. That's cool. And yes, getting back to writing. Yeah, sorry. Um, tangent. No, 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 that's fine.
0: Um, what is it that actually drew you to short stories as a format that he felt like, I don't want to write Flash, I don't want to write novels.
1: You yeah, know, short story fits me. Laziness. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was, I did a short story writing course, a comprehensive writing course. And, well, that came off the back of I, I used to work as a man with a van, yeah. a van man driving superhero. Yeah. And I got hired one day. To do a job where I had to go move a beehive, uh-huh. and I'd assumed that the beehive would be empty. And I got there, and it had 5,000 bees in it. Uh-huh. And I, t- I said to the lady, I was like, I, I can't do this. It's got 5,000 bees in it. I thought yeah. it was empty. And she said, Come and have a cup of tea and a bit of cake. And she uh-huh. plied with me with tea and cake and somehow coerced me into putting on a beekeeping suit and driving yeah. all these bees to Devon. And they forklifted the beehive. It was strapped to a pallet. And they forklifted it into the back of the van, gassed uh-huh. them. Yeah, And off I went, and the gas was supposed to calm them down, but it just seemed to infuriate them beyond belief. And I got lost, and I was trying to do a bit of map reading in a swarm of bees, literally. I was like, I've got to get a new job. I want to do something different. And I'd been thinking about doing a correspondence writing course for a while, and I went home and signed up for it. Mm. And part of that course took you through writing novels, because that's what most people want to do. Everyone's Mm. got a book in them, and that's where those courses come from. And so it was kind, it wasn't geared towards that, but that was the end of it, because yeah. that's the end result most people want. And uh, so I had a synopsis, the tutor was quite positive about it, so yeah. I've, I wrote a book off yeah. the back of it. And that took about three years, and it was a lot of, it was a great learning curve, but it was, yeah. I think you're better off starting with shorter fiction mm. to learn the ropes rather yeah. than trying to take on a novel when you don't really know how to write fiction. Mm. And I got to the end of that and ended up self-publishing it after mm. it got rejected everywhere. Yeah. And I thought short stories are much, much easier to finish. So why yeah. don't I put less pressure on myself and instead mm. of trying to write another book, which mm. I really didn't want to do after yeah. just finishing that one, why don't I do something more manageable? Yeah. And actually I found that the short story format far better suited my style of writing because yeah. it's just the way my brain works. Yeah. I tend to work with succinct ideas yeah. rather than massive sprawling ones. Yeah. So it it really, it comes down to it suits what I do. Yeah. And I guess um, with
0: attention spans these days now, it's much easier to get feedback from people on a short story than a novel. Absolutely. And you run your own uh, short story competition, Mm. and that's increased in popularity Mm. over the last few years. Um, How did you start that? and
1: you know how has that progressed for you originally i had a, a website that i put up to, to showcase my own mm. writing and cuz no one knew who i was no one found mm. it and no one wrote you know read anything so i developed lists of short story competitions cuz mm. i had a big spreadsheet that i used to plan all my submissions and yeah. i thought well, if i share this maybe people will find it useful online mm. and that got my website quite a large readership and because i had all these lists of competitions it just seemed like a natural progression mm. to run my own So I wanted to do something a bit different so it would stand out. Mm. And because I like humour and there aren't that many outlets specifically for humour, I thought I'll run a humorous competition, not aimed at fantasy, just aimed broadly at humour. And it started from there because I couldn't compete with all these other Mm. competitions that have big prizes. I came up with a loony prize where the winner gets their head on the book and they're depicted riding a flaming motorcycle on the book cover and then I strap it to my motorbike and ride it up to hull and back which is where the name of the comp. well actually the name of the competition which is to hull and back came from a very poor play on words of to hell and back so it's just a cliche really terrible idea (laughs) and uh when the competition when I was trying to think of something original I was like I'll ride it to hull and yeah. back again and that'll be what makes it original yeah. i was like no one's going to enter this and then people did i got about 100 entries the first time and i was like yeah. oh my god i'm gonna to have to do this and strap yeah. the bike book to the bike and i offered the winner the chance to go up to hull with me on the back of the motorbike but they didn't want to understandably <laughs> and but they met me in hull and yeah. made the video and stuff i've had one person do it and now it's been running for eight nine years or whatever it Amazing. Is. But yeah, I found it's one of those things where you stick with it and it's grown over time. Mm. So, it's gone from just around about 100 entries the first year up and it gets between 5 and 600 now. Yeah. So, it's a lot of work. Yeah. But, but it's uh, very re-
0: rewarding. And you get uh sort of submissions from all, all over the world, yeah. Yeah. And um what's seems to be the most random place that you've had submissions from?
1: Most uh Trinidad and Tobago. Oh, okay. Brandon's the wrong word, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Most exotic. Yeah. Well, just, I didn't know what the answer was going to be. So I was like, you know, Space Station? I don't know. But, yeah, I think it's uh, a fantastic thing to see how you've progressed from writing for submissions and fingers crossed mm. to having a book launch and then having your own competition. We know each other because of open mic nights. Mm. And so I do want to ask about how you view the difference of a story that's written to to be read and a story that's written to be performed, because you have performed, and mm. had actors come and perform your uh, writing as well. Mm. And how has that formed your writing, and is that something that you
1: want to do more in the future? I'd like to do more. I think they're two, they are two different things. Mm. Some stories work better written down on the page, and mm. others... Uh, work better when they're spoken out loud mm. but there's there are some that work in both mediums mm. very well and that's what I try and aim for so that I can do both okay and it's it's always interesting when someone else reads your story because yeah. they do it differently to how you would Yeah, it, it was almost like you learned something from yeah. it yeah but what I like about reading to an audience, especially if it's a news story, is you can tell where the points are where you're losing them. If they lose their attention or they start fiddling with their phones yeah. and stuff, that's where you need to pay some attention to the story. So it's actually mm. really good for, it's almost like getting a live critique yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you're performing. Yeah, instant. Yeah. <laughs> um, and
0: were you already writing short stories when you decided to read them in front of an audience? Yeah. And did you notice a, a, a shift in your writing when that happened?
1: Yeah, I think so. Like the first story I ever read out live was, it was in Bristol. I can't even remember the name of the event, but it, it was held in King Street. Okay. In the upstairs room at... That would have been Small Stories. That's it, Small Stories, thank you. As in Small that Bar? The f- yes, Small Bar, Small Stories, there you go, yeah. it was there. And I read Death of a Superhero, and by then I'd I'd had quite a lot of stories published, and it was just another avenue, really, to explore. But I really enjoyed it, and it was nice getting the feedback from the audience, so that kind of got me hooked. Yes, it is quite addictive. It is something that you can
0: see it in in the audience as well as Mm. the people reading it. Definitely a mutual benefit. Yeah. Going back to what you said about it's like a live critique. When it comes to critique, because you did briefly mention submitting to your writing group. And do you see your writing group as your beta readers? Yeah. And how long have you been in writing groups and how has that beta reading affected your writing? It's vastly improved it,
1: I'd say. I've probably been in groups for probably about eight years now, Mm -hmm. something like that. And I originally joined because I worked with Christy who had a writing group and I invited Mm. myself along to it (laughs) and I found the feedback really useful because it was a small group, well it is a small group, it's got about six, seven people in it and you get a variety of reading tastes and therefore different feedback from each person and when you've got two or three people saying the same thing you know you've got a problem with the story and then Mm -hmm. you can go and fix it. So I found it really helped my publication success rate. Mm. Because sometimes when you you've been writing a story for a long time, you get too close to it and you can't yeah. really see what's wrong with it. And it's really helpful to have other pairs of eyes on it, so mm. that you can then go back and edit it and finish it off properly. Yeah. So I've come to rely on it really. Now.
0: Yeah. Uh would you say uh, having multiple people read it and then you know seeing
1: if there's a trend mm. is like the best form of feedback? Or it is, is the uh, yeah. I find that when it's a the the stories at like its second or third draft stage, mm. then yes, yeah. And then you can go back and refine it and do what you want with it, Mm. but keep what they've said in mind.
0: And uh, have you worked with professional editors at all? And what's your experience there?
1: What do you think makes a good editor? People that will listen to what you want, but aren't afraid to tell you when something's wrong. Mm. So uh, I've been very fortunate. I think all the the editors I've worked with have been really good. Mm. i worked with one recently for Comma Press, because I'm having a story published by them in the Book of Bristol, which is oh, yeah. all stories set in Bristol. And Heather, who did the editing, was brilliant. We did about six or seven rounds. Mm-hmm. And so the story was fairly strong when I submitted it to them originally. Mm. And they came back and said, we really like it, but can you just sort out this structural problem? And one of the characters was not in there yeah. enough to warrant being in there. Yeah. And they asked me to bring her in more okay. rather than take her out. So I had to extend the story a little bit. But actually it worked a lot better okay. when I took that feedback on and did yeah. it. And then they accepted the story and that's when we went into the more line-by-line editorial. Yeah. And that is so beneficial when it comes to grammar. Because it doesn't matter how good you are, there are certain aspects of grammar that people... I, I get snow blind to it, you can't yeah. see it. Yeah. One of my faults is dangling participles at the beginning of sentences, <laughs> and it just goes over my head. But when they point them out and say, "Why mm. don't you try rephrasing it like this so it's mm-hmm. active instead of passive," mm. and suddenly you're like, "That's way better. Why didn't I just do that in the yeah. first place?" So I find it yeah. really valuable. And when you get to that final bit with the editor, mm. it's so important for that the professionalism of that final draft. Yeah, you know, sort of. This is a anthology collection that you've sort of uh, been involved
0: with. Have you ever? paid for an editor privately or or do you see see this value in someone who if they're trying to get submissions to go to an editor
1: yes but it it depends what your end goal is so when I did alternative afterlives yes Mm. I had an editor to work on it before Mm. I gave it to the publisher because I wanted to make their life as easy as possible and I wanted to work with an editor that I trusted Mm. rather than being thrown in with whoever they decided they wanted me to. And luckily, they thought it was a good enough standard where they asked for a couple of tweaks, but it was minor stuff. So yes, when you're doing a book, I think it's imperative, otherwise it's not gonna be professional enough. When you're just submitting to a competition, editing is quite an expensive thing to purchase. It's a service where you've gotta pay a professional for their time. So if you're just going in for a competition, I don't know, I don't tend to work with an editor for that, Usually, the competition, if they accept it, will work with you on it to edit it for the anthology. Yeah, I was going to say that you
0: know when uh, you mentioned before, some of them will, for a, a small fee, offer a critique. That's Within right, yeah. them, that's a form of editing in itself.
1: It is, yeah. So sometimes you, it's so terse that they mm. don't really offer any editorial advice on grammar yeah. or anything. It's more to do with structure. Yeah. But other times, yeah, they'll point out you do this a lot or you yeah. make this mistake quite a lot. You need to sort that out yeah and as a writer
0: who who found a great readership through putting on a website I'm interested in sort of your views on social media as a short story writer as some you know a direction to your work and how beneficial do you find social media
1: as promotion the social media is is beneficial but it's very hard to qualify your return on investment Mm. talk business (laughs) it's really hard to say i did this and that resulted in this much money you can't do that it's like it's how much shit can you throw at the wall basically and what sticks it's that old analogy but there are a lot of writers particularly on twitter Mm. so it's good to get involved with the community there just because you get to know people Mm. and on facebook it tends to be more around groups there's a Mm. lot of writing groups on facebook that can be useful i've done a fair bit of advertising on facebook for my competition and books but I've had mixed results with that. Yeah. You get a fair bit of abuse. I had unfounded accusations of being a scam. Yeah. And when I'd go back to the people saying, it's not a scam, here's the write-up I did last yeah. year, you can see how I allocated all the prize money yeah. and everything and the profit and all that kind yeah. of stuff. They wouldn't have it, wouldn't read it, basically, yeah. wouldn't read the write-up. So I have found that a bit of a mixed bag mm. when it's paid advertising. Yeah. And I don't really get Instagram. Yeah, you're not going but to put in a small square your entire short story. People do. That's do That's the they? thing. There's a lot of writers on Instagram. Yeah. But I think some people are quite skilled at it. And others mm. aren't. And I, I fall into the not skilled <laughs> category when it comes
0: to that. I was wondering with uh, your view now that you've got your own collection out with a second coming. And you've submitted a lot to have things professionally published. What's your view of actually having a website with your short stories on? So there's no revenue from it but people can find you and judge your work and maybe become a fan and then uh, follow you. Is that something you think is good or do you think in talking
1: business in the current age that's not a good idea? I think it's you've got to get the balance right. Mm. Don't give away everything for free because that's essentially what you're doing if you put something online. Yeah. And then it is previously published and a lot of Editors won't consider something that's previously published. But at the same time, you do want people to be able to get a flavor of what you do. So what I tend to do is put part of a story up Mm -hmm. and then a link to the book that it appears in so they can read the rest of it if they want to. And that makes sense financially, because if you get someone that likes it, they'll go and look at your book. Yes, it's getting the balance right. I do make money from my website and that's done in different ways. Mm. So largely through Google AdSense and Mm. affiliate platforms. So you can make money from it in a kind of invisible way, mm. although more people are becoming aware of how that works yeah. now. So it, it's visible. Yeah, <laughs> but there are other ways of monetizing the writing beyond mm. just getting paid for it to be published nowadays.
0: Yeah, with the monetizing things, I was just going to ask you because you're traditionally published with your alternative afterlives, but you have self-published in mm. the past. What do you think of the pros and cons of self-publishing things through the Kindle store on mm. Amazon, and also people have quite a conflicted view of Amazon but they're the biggest showcase in town Mm. you know when it comes to short stories do you feel that's a worthy avenue to put things up
1: it depends yes it is if you're prepared to take on board that the clues in the name if you self-publish you are the publisher Mm. and therefore you have to market what you've published if you just bung a book on Amazon you won't sell anything Mm. because you're not going to market it so I've done quite well on those platforms but I spend money on advertising and I actively promote the books that Mm. I publish. So my how-to book which is about how to write short stories, I spend quite a lot of money on ads on Amazon and I find those convert because you can target them on product specific pages. So if you're interested in Stephen King's On Writing, The book comes up, and yeah. people may genuinely be interested in it because it's another book on a different form of writing. Interestingly, I found that a book about the craft and grammar is the one that I do best on when I advertise against it. I can't remember the name of it now. Anyway, it wasn't what, because it's <laughs> yeah. about largely about grammar, I wasn't expecting it to convert well, but it yeah. converts very well when I advertise against search terms to do with that book. Yeah. So uh, overall, I'm quite positive about Amazon mm. and the KDP platform because I think they do an awful lot for authors and they actually allow you to make money out of your writing. Mm. If you compare that to Spotify for music, yeah. they're far more unfair with what mm. they pay the artist because they're basically giving everything away largely for free. Whereas at least with Amazon, people pay to read the book and you can price it low and not very, make very much money on it if you want to. So I think it's a really good platform personally yeah. and tend to be supportive of it, even though I understand why people yeah. don't like Amazon because yeah. it's such a massive yeah. business and they're scared yeah. of it. And
0: with a traditional publishing, obviously they're doing a lot of the promotion for mm-hmm. you, but how have you found actually arranging uh, face-to-face book
1: launches and things like that? Because well, we've got some virtual ones mm. coming up. So. Yeah, I love book launches. I quite yeah. enjoy them. I prefer them when they're the anthologies that I put together with lots of different authors in it, Mm -hmm. because then you involve more people. I'm less comfortable when it's just me. So I wouldn't say I enjoyed that, (laughs) because the focus was all on me, whereas the ones I've got coming up, I'm just about to publish next Saturday, actually, the 81 Words anthology, which has got a thousand authors in it. Amazing. And Victorina Press are doing that one, and that's really nice to be involved with because all these authors are so excited about the fact that they're in this unofficial world record-breaking book that's got this many contributing authors in it. So that's keeping me very busy at the moment, but we're doing an online launch for that. And while I prefer face-to-face launches because you get a much better atmosphere, Mm. you know, Zoom's got its place, but it's devoid of atmosphere because it's just a screen. When you're dealing with people from all over the world like that it gives them the opportunity to attend so it has got that advantage to it if I held it here in Bristol only a tiny proportion of them would be able to turn up so you know I think it's a mix I like to do a mix of things
0: and final two questions it's always my belief that you learn something with every story that you write and obviously as a short story writer you're writing a lot of stories, but you've said earlier as well how it was through writing stories that you improved. I'm just wondering, is there something that you've written recently where you had like a very conscious moment of, oh, I need to do this on my next story? And have you learnt something recently?
1: Yeah, I, the thing I learned the most about is editing. Mm. And actually, the, the longer I've written, the more important the editing afterwards. Because yeah. every time you work with a different editor or learn a new aspect of grammar... It mm. makes you a better writer mm. and so that's the thing that I don't think I'll ever stop learning in yes. respect to that but I think working recently with Heather on this story and yeah. what she did with the importance of every character within it yeah I I'd, I'd overlooked one of the characters yeah. and not given them what they needed it's made me think very carefully about one whether I need a character, these all these characters in the yeah. story and for two if I do they better have a damn good reason for being in there yeah that's really good advice yeah
0: and as you said you've written your own book on how to write short stories and get published Mm. um is there one piece of advice that you are consciously aware of like you said with editing you know and grammar being important is there one thing that if you were to write one piece of advice on your desk as a
1: reminder what would that be oh there's so many choices Mm. I think maybe nothing is ever finished um, while you've got to draw a line under something at some point mm. you can always improve it yeah. and I like to I think when you've written something that's strong put it away for a while come back to it a little bit later and just yeah. make sure it's as strong as you thought it was and never stop learning that's the yeah. most important thing I don't yeah. ever want to stop learning and I think yeah. if you think you know everything you're in a very dangerous place <laughs> yeah No, that's uh, great. Well, that's a perfect place to end the interview, and
0: I'd just like to thank you, Chris, uh, for joining me today. Thank you, Tom. And that was The Real Writing Process of Christopher Fielden. If you'd like to find out more about Chris, please do check out his website, christopherfielden.com. Again, I'm fortunate enough to have a guest with a very clear website, with all of the links to his books and social media on his homepage, so just go there. There is one special mention Chris would like me to make, though. His latest anthology, the descriptively titled 81 Words Flash Fiction Anthology, has just been published by Victorina Press. It contains a thousand stories by a thousand writers that are all 81 words long. The stories, not the writers. Not sure how that would be physically possible. Anyway, I'll provide a link to it in the show notes, but if you don't want to read them, Google exists. Anyway, that's it for this episode. As a special treat, this week's outro music is by Chris's band Airbus. This is their single called I, from the album called You. And this is a man called Tom Pepperdine, saying goodbye. Goodbye.